you know, we're in, in a series on the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is, is one of the most misunderstood persons in Scripture. We talk a lot about Almighty God, God the Father, and Jesus the Son. But we usually in churches talk very little about the Holy Spirit. And many of us have many different understandings of the Spirit, maybe because of some experience we've had in a Pentecostal or charismatic church, or maybe you had almost no exposure to teaching and talking about the Spirit. In either case, we often carry wrong ideas about the Spirit, or perhaps uh, talk about the Holy Spirit makes us a little nervous that have led to avoidance of any really serious conversation about the Spirit's work. Yet Jesus, Paul, and all the New Testament writers make it abundantly clear that the Spirit's work in our lives is the key to successfully living as a follower of Jesus. And it's necessary for the church as a whole if we're going to successfully seek to represent God in this world and accomplish His purposes in the world. It's crucial that we come to understand the work of the Spirit and move beyond any biases or misunderstandings we have to live as a Christ follower today. You know, last week we talked about the Holy Spirit and notice that Jesus called him the Spirit of Truth. And the Spirit's job is to connect us to God's truth and to speak God's truth into our lives um, and, and, and help us declare God's truth in the world in which we live. This week, we're highlighting how the Spirit is related to our identity as sons of God. Uh, in both passages, in Romans and Galatians, we hear two key thoughts that are expressed. Listen to this verse again from Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And what Paul does in both places, he contrasts the Holy Spirit, what I would call the big S, <laughs> work in confirming that we're sons of God with what he calls the spirit of slavery, small s, meaning being enslaved to unhealthy values and priorities that deprive us of the real life and joy that God wants to bring to us. So we're going to look at, at both of those issues today. You know, in today's world, we might be tempted to ask why Paul uses the image of sonship as opposed to just calling us the children of God. You know, is that a reflection of the era in which he lived, in which Yamal was dominant in the world in Jesus' day? Is Paul discounting half of the world's population? You know, many newer translations will use the phrase children of God instead of the sons of God. And then many people will say, well, isn't everyone a child of God? After all, he, he created us. Well, I want to suggest this to you that if we change Paul's language here, we will miss the real meaning and the power of what these texts are saying to us today about our identity. You know, too often we read the scriptures and only compare it with our current cultural values without understanding, and we miss what is really being said because we don't understand the context in which it was written. Yes, we're all created by God. You know, in Acts 17, when Paul speaks to 
the philosophers and thinkers in, in Greece at the Areopagus. He, he makes a statement saying that we're all God's offspring since he's our creator. But being God's offspring is different than being a child of God. It's much like this, that uh, a man has a relationship with a woman and gives birth and, the, and they give birth to a child, but that man disappears from the child's life. And that child then is adopted by another man who fathers and raises that child. Now, is the there's a biological father. He, he's, he's the author of that life. But is he really the father of the child? No. He doesn't have a relationship with him. So, yes, God created everyone, but that's not the same as saying everyone has a relationship to God as a father-child. That's what God wants for every person. Now, Paul is not putting down women when he uses the term sons of God. In truth, he is actually affirming the value and status of women. In the Galatians passage, Paul says that there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. In Jesus, we're all one in Christ Jesus. In Judaism, the firstborn male, firstborn son, was the favored child in the family. He received special treatment. He received a larger inheritance than anyone else. Um, and, and so he received special status and privileges. So when Paul uses the term son, he is referring to the special status and privileges of the firstborn son. And he is saying that when anyone follows Jesus Christ, God treats that person, both male and female, with the same honor and privilege given to the firstborn son in Judaism. He is actually elevating the status of women. He's not minimizing, he's not putting it down. He's saying, look, when someone comes to faith in Christ, God treats him just like the first, they treat the firstborn son in the day, in Jesus' day. Everyone is treated that way. Male, female, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor. Everyone is, is treated the same. So he's not putting women down, but is actually elevating their status in God's kingdom. So to generically translate it as the children of God, we will miss the fact that Paul is very strongly making a statement, elevating the status of women, slaves, and non-Jews in his day. And that's what he's doing when he says everyone is treated as the sons of God. So let, let's return to the issue of our identity. If we're going to understand the text today, I think we first have to ask ourselves a question. How do we identify ourselves? Now, if I came to Gloria and said, Gloria, how do you identify yourself? How would you identify? How do you define yourself? What would you say? You know, uh, this happened to me, uh, uh, I don't know how many, 10, 15, 20 years ago. I was in a conference, and it was mostly pastors there, and the speaker asked that same question. How would you identify yourself to a person who doesn't know you? And, and the interesting thing is there were all kinds of answers that came out. Some said, I'm a son or daughter of my parents. You know, I'm Swedish by background, and most Swedish names end in and S-O-N, Larson, Johnson. And what's that mean? Well, originally it came means I was the son of Lars. I was the son of John. That's how those names can be. They were identifying themselves by their relationship to their parents. Some identify themselves by what they do for work. 
I'm a doctor, I'm a pastor, I'm a carpenter, and so on. Some identified themselves by their family roles. I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a mother, I'm a wife. Others identified themselves by their passions. You know, I'm an animal lover, I love to hike, I love to travel. And the interesting thing was, not many immediately responded and saying that they were a child or a son or daughter of God as a follower of Jesus. They gave every other identity. And that was really revealing. What Paul is suggesting here is that What Paul is suggesting here that is that as a first and foremost, as a follower of Jesus, we ought to be able to identify ourselves as a son or daughter of God. And and I think what he's pointing out is is that that's the difference primarily between a head knowledge of our faith in Jesus and a deep heartfelt knowledge that passionately grips every aspect of our lives. How do you identify yourself what would you have said you know if I asked you this morning to stand up and say who are you what would have been your first response an honest answer not just a theologically correct answer but what would you out of your heart and a sense of emotions say who you are and I think to really understand today's scripture we have to be honest with ourselves how do we see and identify ourselves and I would take you just a moment, take a moment of silence and just ask yourself, how would you honestly answer that question? Ignoring what I just said, what would have been your response? Just take a moment and think about that. And I hope you will continue to think about that. You know, and that really leads us to the second point. The scriptures are teaching us that as followers of Jesus, our true identity is as privileged sons of God. Is as privileged sons of God. Listen again to those two verses from these passages. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then Paul writes in Galatians, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You know, anytime Jesus prays to his Father in heaven or teaches his disciples to pray, Jesus always uses the Aramaic term Abba for his Father in heaven. Now, most of you probably know this, but Abba is the most intimate of terms for a father. It's something like saying Papa, Daddy, to our fathers today. The term implies an intimacy and a great delight. It's an expression of deep love. And both scriptures use the term crying, Abba, Father. Now when he says crying, it means calling out. It implies much more than just simply greeting God in a formal way. It's a declaration of passion. You know, last Friday and Saturday, I spent up in New Hampshire with my daughter and son-in-law helping them do some building they were, were doing. And they have three kids, well, they have two kids and one on the way. They're expecting sometime the end of February or March. And their youngest son, Ben, is not quite two. And it's interesting to watch. Every time his father walked into the house, Ben would stop what he's doing. 
he'd look at him, and then he'd run to him and hug his leg. You know, a couple times, I don't know if he looked up or not, he ran and hugged me because <laughs> I was the guy. But he ran and hugged his father. And, and basically he would say, Dada, Dada. And, and, and that's exactly what Jesus and Paul is saying here when he says, crying, Abba, Father. Paul is saying that it's the Spirit's job to so convince us of our identity as a firstborn son of God that we would love God with the same kind of passion that little Ben does towards his father. You know, let me share another practical illustration. You know, when someone first falls in love with the person they think they're going to marry, I, hopefully some of you can remember back to that point in time, but I can remember back, what happens? You can't stop thinking about the other person. They're always on your mind. You're always thinking about them. You know, um, today we have social media, but before social media, you're calling or you're writing notes. You know, in our day when we didn't have cell phones, Sue was always writing me notes. We want to express that that, our, that that person is always on our mind. And, and there's a, a passion and excitement to it. And, and that's exactly what is happening here. Paul is telling us that if the Spirit is working fully and freely in our lives, as God intended, that we would feel that same kind of passion towards God where we spontaneously cry out, Daddy God. And we take great pleasure in running to Him, embracing Him, and just plain loving Him. You know, the term crying is also translated calling out in a number of translations. And in many ways, it's really a reference to prayer. It's suggesting to us that when we talk to God, there should be a spontaneity that just delights in declaring our love and appreciation for our Heavenly Father. We don't just come to God with a prepared list of our requests and concerns, but we first come to give joyously declaring our love and appreciation of Him for who He is and what He's done for us. Now think about the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to give you a kind of a, a, a really loose translation of the first couple of lines of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in Heaven, our Daddy, our Papa, whom we love with all of our heart. We just want to come and hug you and wrap our arms around you and we want to be hugged by you and feel the warmth of your embrace. Hallowed be your name. May I just delight in talking about you and honoring you, and I want you to know how much I love you and just how amazing you are. How do you start your time when you're talking to God? Do you express your delight and pleasure in knowing that you're a child of God? Do you spend time pointing out just how good and kind God is to you, how much you appreciate all that he has done? Paul is saying that if the Spirit of God is fully at work in our lives, our conversations with God will regularly start off with that kind of expression of love and passion for Him. Another question for you to ponder. Is that the kind of passion and admiration that's regularly a part of how you talk with God? Or is it, I just come to God with my requests and my needs and my concerns? You know, the Spirit's job is to convince us that we're a child of God. To fill our hearts and minds with a deep abiding love for Him. And so there's this one additional part to what the Spirit will do. He reminds us and convinces us that we're a fellow heir of God with Christ Jesus. Both texts point this out. 
Romans 8 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Then in Galatians 4, 7, Paul reiterates, saying, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. An heir means that one has the legal title of all his father's estate. You know, as parents, what do we do? We draw up our wills, and we identify our, our children as our heirs. And they are guaranteed that when, we pass, that when we die, we pass on to them all that we have. So when we follow Jesus, God wants us to know that we have nothing to fear or anything to fear, anyone. God is the creator of the ruleless world. He'll honor us just as he honors his one and only son, Jesus. That everything he gives to Jesus, he gives to us as his heir of God in the future. And we'll see the full measure of that when Jesus returns to earth. But we have inherited all the rights of Jesus himself. Think about that. You know, I, I once heard a story about uh, a particular speaker that in their family adopted a lot of uh, children out of foster care and adopted them into their families. And, and, you know, one of the first things they would do when they adopt that child is they would take him to the lawyer's office and sit down and say, we're writing you into our will. So they would know that, that they're being taken in. And then they would say to him, you know, we have a couple kids that are natural born of us and, and, and they're special and we love them, but you're even doubly special because we chose to bring you into our family. We chose to bring you in. And, and so that's what Paul is saying in these texts, that God has adopted us into his family as children, and he has made us this heir, the same as Jesus. The same promises to us. And then Paul adds in verse 29, he says, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now, what he's saying is, we may not be physically born Jewish, but we're the true descendants of Abraham that God originally intended. We are a part of the promise God made to Abraham that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. So what Paul is saying is, is that we are part of that, that in us, through our faith in Jesus, all the families of the earth would be blessed. An error of the promise that God made in the very beginning of the biblical story. That we're a part of that. Do you understand that your place in God's kingdom is eternally secured through your faith in Jesus Christ? You know, as we, we said earlier, Paul compares the idea of sonship to that of slavery. So the third point in our text is simply this. Apart from faith in Jesus... We are defined by other values that actually enslave us. And this is where the texts get kind of interesting. He wants us to understand the difference between what God wants for us and what we experience apart from faith in Jesus. He wants us to see the difference. So Paul writes this. Now I say as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. 
Now that's an interesting comparison. Paul makes when he, he says a child who is an heir. In other words, the child of, of someone could be wealthy and they're, they're going to inherit it all. But they're no different than a slave until he comes of age. Tim Keller in his commentary of Galatians really explains the meaning of what Paul is saying as well. You see, in the Roman world, the transition from a childhood to adulthood was a well-defined process. Unfortunately, that's not the case in our culture. We really don't have clear traditions that mark out the transition from being a child to an adult. But a Roman child who was going to be an heir of an estate was considered a minor until the age of 14 and always had a legal guardian and really didn't have access to his full inheritance. The guardian made all the decisions about that inheritance. And then he still didn't have full access to his inheritance until age 25 because at that up to 25 he usually had a trustee that was overseeing and approving the decisions. So he, Paul is saying, in other words, he's not free to enjoy the full privileges of his inheritance until he comes of age. He was still controlled by someone else. And so Paul is saying that until we embrace Jesus, we're like the child who has not come of age. We're controlled by something else. Our life is controlled by a different set of expectations and values that governs our lives and that we impose on ourselves and others. And those expectations keep us from finding the freedom and security that what God wants to give us. Now, in first century Judaism, the men in the synagogue would stand and pray a prayer modeled by the rabbis almost every Sabbath. And it would go like this. Thank you, my God, that I am not a Gentile, I'm not a woman, and I'm not a slave. Now, women, how would you feel if we stood up and offered that prayer on Sunday morning? You'd probably all be walking out of the church. And I wouldn't blame you. But you think about that. Gentile, woman, slave. And so you hear Paul's statement that there's neither Jew nor Greek. Slave nor female. Male nor female. They were defining themselves by birth in a number of different ways. Thank you that I'm a Jew because that is better than being born to any other race or nationality. As a Jew, I'm better than someone else born of another nation and another nationality. We've had the history of God. That would be like saying today, I was born white, and that's being better than born black. And we know that's a, an issue in our society. Or we define ourselves by our social status. Thank you, God, that I'm better than those who are born poor and on the other side of the tracks. I have money, and I'm better than those who aren't free or are born poor. That's defining yourself by your socioeconomic status. Or we define ourselves by our gender. I'm a man, and we are created to rule over females. And we've seen the battle that's raged over gender for well over a century, starting with the women's suffrage movement. And it's still raging, as women still don't earn the same pay as men in the marketplace for the most part. When we define ourselves by those kinds of values, we are enslaving ourselves to a wrong set of values that harm us and puts other people down. It hinders our lives, and it hinders other people's lives. It produces brokenness and distorted truths. And then Paul goes on and tells us we can also define ourselves by a set of values. 
Paul writes in our text today, not, not but just by birth, but by a set of values. And he, and he writes in verses 3 and 4 of our text, So also while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so what Paul is talking about there, he's talking about the problem of religion and the Mosaic law. The law spelled out how God intended us to live, but in the Old Testament, it wasn't as clear on God's forgiveness and the relationship we had to God. And so what happened was, you know, you had two main parts of the law, the ceremonial law, which was all the religious tradition, circumcision, observing the Sabbath, food to eat, those kinds of things. And it was the moral law, basically identified for the most part by the Ten Commandments, what we're supposed to keep. And so what the Jews did, they began to define themselves by a set of values. And if someone doesn't live up to those values, then they pointed fingers at them, judged them, and we see ourselves as superior. What does that do? That enslaves us and condemns others different than us. It doesn't matter whether it's the Mosaic law or any set of values determined by any other faith, creed, or philosophy. Those values lead to judgment, division, brokenness. Then enslaves everybody instead of providing freedom. That's what you might call a religious spirit. That's why people today tend to reject religion and way too often Christians and Christian churches fall into that trap. And we look at people and say, you have to live this way and if you don't live this way, you're a bad person. And that takes all the joy out of life for them and for us. It deprives us of the life God wants us to live. We're being governed by another set of values. You know, the classic example of what, what Paul is talking about is found in Luke 18 where Jesus tells a parable, a story about a Pharisee, a religious person, and a tax collector that go into the temple to pray. And the religious person prays something like this, thank God that I'm not like other people, thieves and adulterers, or like this tax collector. I thank God that I pray regularly, twice, fast twice a week, on tithe, all I earn. And if you read that text, it actually implies that he's, he's saying that to himself. He's not saying that to aloud. <laughs> but the, the, the tax collector asks God to be merciful to him, for he's just a sinner. And Jesus says, the tax collector finds forgiveness and freedom. The religious person finds God's judgment. So when we define our lives by a set of values, whether they're uh, some philosophical creed, some uh, life value, some political view, whatever it is that we define ourselves by, we often end up judging other people by that. We enslave ourselves, we enslave them, we lead to brokenness. So later in chapter 4, Paul asks the Christians in Galatia, why have they lost their joy? The blessings they experienced when they first followed Jesus, I think it's in verse 15 of chapter 4. And they were starting to go back to living by a set of rules. They had come to faith in Jesus, they found freedom, and then... Uh, other Jewish Christians came down and said, no, no, you have to be Jew also. You have to observe all these rules. And, and Paul says, why have you lost your joy? 
because we then identify ourselves by whether or not we follow these rules and values rather than identifying ourselves as privileged sons and heirs of God. And there's a huge difference. So the key question we must all ask is, how do I identify myself? Do I primarily see myself as a privileged son of God, a fellow heir with Christ Jesus? Or do I primarily identify myself by other human convention? It's the Spirit's job to point us to our position in Christ when we follow Jesus. That we're a child of God. That we're loved eternally. That we're completely forgiven and guaranteed all the privileges that God bestows on Jesus. And our text today has given us some clues to help us figure out how we really see ourselves. And I'll just spell those out real quickly for you. Do you have a passionate love for God that causes you to want to embrace God as your daddy and papa, much like a little chug child will hug and embrace his human father? Do you think about your heavenly father much like a person who falls in love with another person, always thinking about wanting to be with, wanting to share your heart with, to declare your love to? Because if we really grab our identity and understand all that God has done for us, Paul is saying that ought to be our response. When you pray and talk with God, do you spend time just loving him and being thankful for who he is or what he does, has done for you? Or do you only talk with him when you have something to ask him about or something you need or a concern or a request you share? Finally, do you know that you are eternally secure and that nothing can ever separate you from the love and presence of God? Do you have that kind of confidence that says God's never going to abandon you? No matter what happens in life, no matter what kind of difficult circumstances you encounter, you have this sure and present hope that God is with you and he'll never leave you alone. He'll honor his every promise to you. You know, and so what Paul is suggesting to us, that is how our faith in Jesus should shape our identity. And if it's not, then he's saying, well, we have not let the Spirit of God really freely work in our lives in the way Jesus intended it to. And we need the Spirit of God to enable us to understand just how much we are loved and who we are as followers of Jesus. So how do we get there to where God wants us to be? Well, you know, I, I said in the beginning, in the very first verse, where Paul calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ, because he's to point us to Jesus and what he's done. So we need to invest in reading and studying the scriptures about Jesus. That takes some work on our part. It takes an investment of time, making it a priority to say, I'm going to spend some time learning about Jesus on my own. And as we do that, we ask the Spirit of God to open our hearts and minds so that Jesus becomes very real to us. Remember when Jesus said in John 14, 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Spirit can't do that in our lives unless we're investing time in knowing who Jesus is, what he did, and what he taught. He can't bring it to remembrance unless we are investing the time to discover and understand who Jesus is and what he did. 
So we must learn to read and think about and seek to understand Scripture, asking for the Spirit's help every time we open the Word of God. And there's a huge difference. You know, I, I, I can tell you at times where I sit down and open my Bible in, in the early morning to read the passage of Scripture I'm reading, and I just start reading, and there's a difference when I stop and say, oh God, this is your Word. <laughs> Let your Spirit speak into my heart as I read your Word. Because sometimes we just open the Bible and read it with the sake of, well, this is what I ought to do, I'm a Christian. But that's not the same as, as stopping and saying, okay, God, this is your word to me. What do you want to say to me? Open my heart. Help me to see what it is that you're saying. They're, they're two completely different approaches. And, and so, and then we need to talk to God spontaneous all through the day from the context of remembering his love for us. When we come to God, do we act like a slave who's asking for permission or, God, or always arguing about what we want to do and how come God's eliminating us or why he doesn't do what we want? Or, or are we talking to God like a child who absolutely knows his father's love, crying out, Abba, Father? When we approach God that way throughout the day, I, I believe what Scripture is saying and Paul is saying is the Spirit is free to work in us, assuring us that we're privileged children of God flooding our hearts with a sense of confidence and assurance that he'll be with us and he'll fulfill all of his promises in his love, in our lives. You know, there's an interesting thought that someone presented. Everywhere that Jesus prays or tells his disciples to pray in the scriptures, he always starts with the Aramaic word, word Abba, Daddy God. There's only one place where he doesn't. Anybody have a guess where that is? on the cross where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's where he doesn't. Because God had turned away because he couldn't see his sin. And so what happened there was, is that Jesus made himself an orphan. He cut himself off from his relationship to God so that we could be grafted into the family of God and made a son. Jesus, who was the son on the cross, made himself an orphan for our sake so that we could come and be grafted into the family of God, be the child of God. That's the only place where Jesus doesn't say Abba. It was when he was cut off from God and he was an orphan. So it wasn't appropriate to say Daddy God. <laughs> but that's who he is. That's the measure of his love. He cut himself off so that we could be grafted in and become the sons and daughters of God.